because we have to go through the process, the mental process of, and the theory and approaching our clinic the way that is true to our own beliefs, true to our own style, and of course also consistent with Chinese medicine. But we have to, like any art form, which I do think Chinese medicine is, we have to, we have to make it our own. We have to put our spirit into that practice. Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. Kevin Kelly is one of my favorite thinker, writer, curator, all-around Renaissance-like guys. He's an Amish farmer-looking fellow who seems to have a capacity to look at societal changing technology and trends dead in the eye and calmly describe the world it will generate. He's a man in his 70s who's managed to keep an open and inquiring mind that would challenge a 20-year-old. He was on the editing staff of publications that were emblematic of decades of my life. The Whole Earth Review, Wired in the Early Days, and the various books that he's written, I make sure to read them because he has a way of seeing the societal changes coming in a way that engages my curiosity instead of stoking my fear. Kevin's got a bit of advice from his new book, oddly enough, a book on bits of advice that he wished that he'd known earlier. He recommends that rather than steering your life to avoid surprises, aim directly at them. Sounds nice, doesn't it? At least on paper. But when I consider aiming directly at surprise in areas that matter to me, in terms of identity, belief, or belonging, then it's another story. Aiming at surprise means not aiming at safety. It means daring yourself into being uncomfortable, committing to open-hearted exploration and a willingness to live with the consequences. It means forgoing certainty and inviting disruption, letting go of trauma, and leaning on latent capacity in the state of becoming. I'd like to think of myself as open-minded and with a high need for novelty, but when I consider aiming my life at surprise, I find that I have to go through an internal Department of Homeland Security and Ministry of Weights, Measures, and Truth as well. It sounds inspiring, but it feels threatening, which leads me to the recognition that this is indeed potent advice because it brings up defenses that I hadn't realized were there. So often, the limits I face, they're self-inflicted. Aiming at surprise, that means inviting disruption and starting with my own internal landscape. We lost another pillar of our community last week with the passing of Dr. Leon Hammer. I was not a student of his, but I read some of his writing, and he was a tremendous influence for many with his perspectives on spirit and his detailed investigation of the pulse. Our medicine passes to us from those like Leon who generously share both what they've learned and beyond that, what they have synthesized. Medicine is rediscovered by those who practice it in each generation as the experience of our teachers kindles the potential for understanding within us. Leon contributed much. May his memory be a blessing and his work continue to guide practitioners in helping their patients. If you're lucky enough, like Dr. Hammer, to have work that you want to put your heart into, then you've had an unending source of nourishment 
inspiration, and purpose. And that's part of what we will be discussing with Ross Rosen, who joins us again on Geological for a conversation on the heart of medicine. Stay with us. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Ponsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. 
By switching to AccuFast needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Welcome to Geological Shop Talk. In this podcast, we bring you roughly 12 to 15 minutes of practical clinical methods, perspectives, and advice that has its work boots on. In the next few minutes, you'll get a clinical gem of practical material that you can begin to investigate the next time that you'll walk into clinic. Additionally, visit the show notes page for supporting materials from this week's guest on Shop Talk. All right, roll up your sleeves. Let's get to work. Welcome, everyone, to our shop talk of the day, talking about the Naging concept of the seasonal river tides, a really wonderful topic I hope to share with you. I'm Dr. Edward Neal, the director of the Apricot Grove Project. The Apricot Grove Project is an amazing community of healthcare workers, uh, scholars, artists, and others who are studying traditional sources of knowledge to retell our human story and evolve into a better way of living and being, especially in regard to our relationship to nature. And if this interests you at all, we'd love to have you join us. We have a new class starting in September, um, and we'd love to see you there if you're interested. By the way, I'm giving this as an audio talk today. Just so you know, I'm also recording it as a video presentation. So if you're interested in seeing that and reading some of the translations, uh, we'll give you a link to that. So what am I talking about when I talk about assessing the seasonal river tides? You probably have never heard of this in your training. When we learn pulse diagnosis through our TCM training, we are, in general, we're learning uh, information from the Pulse Classic, written by Wang Shuha in the Western Jin Dynasty, some centuries after the Neijing was written. Like the Shanghan Lun, um, this writing was influenced greatly by the Neijing, but to modern practitioners, that link is sometimes hard to see. Uh, when we've been working with the Neijing over the last 20 years doing classical text archaeology, retelling its story, one of the first things that came out was that what we refer to as the acupuncture channel system, which is now seen as a series of lines, mostly on the skin, but with internal trajectories, of course, was originally a beautiful description of the three-dimensional blood flow of the body. It was way ahead of its time, centuries and centuries and centuries ahead of what was known in the West. Very accurate, done through dissections and very careful investigations and so forth, highly detailed and highly accurate. When we start to make these analogies to rivers, we can pair them with the ideas of rivers and nature. So one of the main ideas of the Neijing is that everything comes from nature. Your body is nature, the woodlands is nature, rivers are nature, the tides of the ocean are nature. They're all run by the same patterns. So if there are rivers in nature, there should be rivers in the body, and they're formed by the same processes. That's why, for example, the clinical method we are now training people in is called Neijing nature-based medicine. It means we always start with nature, 
And healthcare is essentially restoring ecology. I often say we're not so much worried about treating symptoms and signs as restoring ecology. When we restore ecology, then symptoms and signs go away. In nature, the flow of rivers changes during the season, and hydrologists and other people that study rivers call this the tide of the river. So it'll rise and fall in the spring, summer, and winter, has different flow characteristics. We're not talking about the flow levels, because in our blood vessels, those stay fairly uh, standard through the seasons, but the energy that moves within the rivers. We break the flow of the rivers of the body down into a chi component and a blood component. The blood component is the water level or the fluid level, the amount of fluid. Um, the chi means the amount of motion or energy of motion in the river. So, for example, when the Neijing says that the Xiaoyang river systems have less blood and more qi, it means they don't have very much fluid, but they have a lot of, a lot of energy. Therefore, be careful about draining the fluid or the blood because there's not much of it. So we use that in our clinical practice. So the energy of rivers changes throughout the season and it fluctuates with what's happening in the natural environment. By the way, these rivers run through watersheds. A watershed is an ecological area that is defined by the course of a major body of water. So the Colorado River forms the Colorado River watershed, and that's a whole ecology with its own kind of plant life and weather patterns and so forth. And in Neijing medicine, we learn six primary watersheds, and you probably know their name. They're Taiyin, Yangming, Xiaoyin, etc., and they have both upper and lower courses. So when we talk about Yangming in TCM, we're talking about the stomach channel, for example. But when we talk about it in terms of Neijing medicine, the original medicine, we're talking about a, a watershed ecology defined by the lower Yangming and upper Yangming river systems. When we're looking at patients in the clinic, we're not assessing their symptoms and signs as much as their watersheds. And the acupuncture really was a type of traditional surgery that restored the watersheds of the body. That was the, the original meaning of acupuncture. Acupuncture points are part of that ecology, but it's not the primary focus. So if we're looking here at someone with a breast cancer, the way we're going to treat that is by evaluating the natural ecology of the area, trying to understand what went wrong so that a tumor formed there and how to restore that. So assessments of the seasonal river tides. What are we talking about? It would be similar to if you were asked to irrigate a farm and you show up and there was no water in the irrigation ditch, you wouldn't start irrigating. You'd start figuring out how can you fill up that ditch so you have something to work with. And it's the same for us. If we encounter that, we stop our treatment and usually we use food medicine to restore the river's flow over a period of weeks and months. Then we ask, does the river have stomach chi? And I'll talk about what that means. If it doesn't, then we'll often start by trying to repair the center direction so that it does have stomach chi. Stomach chi is a central force within the river that keeps everything connected. Without stomach chi, the forces that move through the river bounce around wildly and the person is not very healthy. The next thing we're going to ask is, what are the seasonal tide qualities? What's, what are we feeling in terms of the seasonal aspect in the pulse? And 
Does it match what we're seeing in nature? And is the timing correct? Right in the center of the pulse, there's a force that is tying everything together. So we want to see some substantiality in the center direction of the pulse so that it's not thrown around wildly. When we see the pulse tides change, we want to see subtle changes within the direction of the stomach chi moving either up or down according to the seasons. If the stomach chi is not there, then when the springtime pulse comes and the energy starts to rise, it will rise wildly. When it starts to sink in winter, it'll sink too strongly. I'll read you a, something about the stomach chi first, and it comes from Suwen 18, which is one of the pulse chapters. It is through water and grains that human beings establish their root, how we make our root. Thus, when a person is cut off from water and grains, which means food, death will follow. So the rivers also are fed by your stomach. And so uh, if a person doesn't have enough flow in their rivers, that's why we treat them with food medicine. When the channel rivers lack stomach chi, the person will also die if they are sick. The so-called condition of lacking stomach chi means that the inherent influences of the zong organs are present within the rivers, but stomach chi is not. So there's no central organizing force that keeps things related. Instead, when the seasonal influences of the organs come into the pulse, they bounce around wildly and the person feels out of sorts and their health is not good. In the days of spring, the stirrings of the pulse should float like a fish swimming among the waves. So in spring, the energy is coming up from the inside, moving out to into the world. In the days of summer, the stirrings of the pulse should be suffused and replete like the fullness of the 10,000 things. This is the way the chi is moving within the river with the seasons. In the days of autumn, the stirrings of the pulse should reside just beneath the skin like the hibernating insects preparing to return to, into the earth. In the days of winter, the stirrings of the pulse should reside close to the bone like hibernating insects sequestered deeply within or the noblemen staying safe and warm in their rooms. So this is what we're talking about, the seasonal tides. Things change. The river flow is relatively constant in a person, but the way the chi is moving within the rivers changes, and it should be changing exactly like the environment you're in. One of the things I enjoy about the seasonal river tides is that it ties me to nature more closely. So when I'm working in the clinic, one of the things that I need to do is paying attention to the world around me as I walk to the clinic or take my walk at lunch break. I'm looking at what's happening in the energy of plants. And so I'm looking to see when the energy is rising out of the root, when it starts to make a bud, when the bud opens, when it's shown fully to the outside, when it's taking its pause in long summer, when it's beginning to return back to its root, because that tells me if my patients are in sync with nature, because if the seasonal tides of their rivers are following what I'm observing, then the person is pretty healthy. A couple of things we use in assessing the pulse, we want to know its timing. We call that taiguo and buji. Taiguo meaning it comes too fast. That means, say, in early winter, before the springtime comes and you see a patient all of a sudden they're showing a springtime tide, a, a bowstring pulse, for example, 
that's coming too early or vice versa. If you see in nature that summer is already beginning and in your patient, uh, springtime tides are just arriving, it means they're not synced up. All right, so let's just talk about each of the, the seasonal tides to finish things up today. You often learn about what's called a wiry pole. What does that mean? One thing is we want to we want to be able to tie our entire practice and understanding to patterns of nature. So what is it in nature that would give something called a, a bowstring or wiry pulse? It occurs when the energy in the plants, which starts in the root and then in the springtime in February, things start to move up through the plant. And at some point, the plant has to push on the soil to pop through. And it's that pushing on the soil that creates the change in the seasonal pulse that we call wiry. And what's happening there is the plant's energy is accumulating up at the surface, and it's doing so to push the earth away so that it can come out into the world. How do I know when that should be happening in my patients? I look when I walk around in my neighborhood to what's happening in the plants. So when I see the buds start to form, but before they actually open, in that period, I should start to feel a bowstring quality in the patient's rivers or their pulse. And what does it feel like? It feels like the energy is up on the top part of the pulse. It's gentle and harmonious. It's not strong and pounding like is often misattributed to this pulse quality. But there's an accumulation of energy just under the surface, and it should mirror exactly what's happening in the plants. It's called xian in Chinese. And Shen means a bowstring or the string of a musical instrument like a qin. And it's, it's supposed to feel like what you felt like if you put your fingers gently on a guitar string and you felt kind of an edge on the top of it. It doesn't mean strong and poundy though. That is a different um, kettle of fish. Here's some passages about this from the Neijing, also from Suwen 18. In springtime, when the rivers of the body have stomach chi, and there is also a slight bowstring quality, the condition is called balanced, a ping. And so we want to feel stomach chi, that central organizing factor, but we also want to feel this rising energy and this accumulation just under the top part of the pulse. And it's like the feeling of the musical instrument string. And it should happen just when those buds are opening. If it happens too soon, it's called Taiwo, coming too fast. If it doesn't come in time, it's called Buji, a Buji pattern, not arriving in time. The Yellow Emperor said, in springtime, the flow of the Channel Rivers resembles a bowstring. How do they resemble a bowstring? And Shibo says, in springtime, the flow of the Channel Rivers is influenced by the liver organs, the eastern direction, and the ascending patterns of growing wood. And here I say liver organs because we now know that what's called the Western spleen was originally a left-sided liver, and that what we call the spleen in Chinese medicine originally referred to the pancreas. During this time, the 10,000 things emerge into the world. Thus, when the qi of the pulse arrives, it's lie. It should be soft, weak, light, empty, and smooth. It should resemble the emerging buds of plants growing straight up. Thus, its quality is called Xian. Okay, what happens next in summertime? 
In summertime, everything comes out and expresses its creative beauty to the world in communion. That's the nature of summer. We take what's stored in our root, we bring it out through spring, and then we express it not only for ourselves, but for all other things to see, and, and we're showing our loveliness to the world. The seasonal quality is called go. It means hook, barb, or curved, and this refers to the shape of a hook. So in the summertime, what we want to feel is that there's that stomach chi, which is the central organizing pattern, but also now that the energy is coming out at you. And the, the shape of the hook means the shape of a wave, like at the ocean. And that means the energy comes at you very strong and then tails off weakly. In summertime, when the rivers of the body have stomach chi, the central organizing force, and there's also a slight hook-like quality, the condition is called balanced, ping. In summertime, the stirrings of the channel rivers resemble a hook. Why is this so? And Chibo says, in summertime, the flow of the channel rivers is influenced by the heart, the southern direction, and the terminal ascent of fire. During this time, the 10,000 things are flourishing and fully mature. Thus, the stirring of the chi arrives with vigor and departs with a diminished quality. Here they're talking about another quality we assess in pulse diagnosis. Called, we call it the Wong Lai, or the, the Lai Chu, means how does the pulse arrive and how does it depart? So in the spring and summertime, the energy is coming out at you, and we feel it on the front part of the pulse image. In autumn, it's weighted more to the rear part. So in summer, it's like a wave coming at you with lots of full energy um, in the shape of a hook. You could also call this a wave pulse, perhaps, but they called it a hook. And they're talking about this pattern of a wave where all the force is coming at you and we're coming out to express and then it tails away um, more weakly. Okay, in long summer, what is the pulse tide, the river tide? What is long summer? Long summer is the time after summer when summer's done its work and it's taking rest and everything is in pause before it turns back into the descent of autumn back to the root and into winter time. It's a lovely time when everything is just resting. I love this time myself because it's the rest after you've done the work and you can just enjoy the, the beauty of that and everything has a balanced quality. Good time to read a summertime book. The tide quality of this long summer is Renro, soft and delicate. And soft and delicate means like the down of a chick. And why is this pulse doesn't have much energy, doesn't um, express much, it's very moderate and slight. Why would that be? Well, in the center of the axle of a wheel, if the wheel is balanced, then there's very little going on in the axle. Um, so it doesn't have a very strong expression if the system is healthy. It just turns around that. So in the long summer, we want to feel the Renro quality, which is that everything is moderate and centered and at ease. In long summer, when the rivers of the body have stomach chi and there's a slight, soft, and delicate quality, the condition is called balanced ping. Okay, what's happening in autumn? We start to feel the air quicken and sharpen, and there's a little bit of a cold chill in the air at night. And if you're looking at the leaves of plants, what you see is that the energy starts to drop out of them, while the expression 
of color is still in the leaves. So it's like the energy that's supporting the leaves drops down back to the root, but there's still something out on the top floating on the surface, which is the leaf. And then we see the leaf turn its color and fall off. And then we know we're turning back into winter. So in autumn time, the seasonal tide quality is called fu, which means floating. And it's just like the, the leaves on the tree where you see the energy dropping out of, back down through the tree, but it's still out there on the periphery before it falls. Um, and when should this happen? I mean, you walk around your neighborhood and you see the leaves starting to turn, the energy is going back down into the tree, but there's still something in the leaf, then you should feel the fu seasonal river tide. In autumn, when the rivers of the body have stomach chi, that central moderating quality, and there's a slight feather-like quality, the condition is called balanced. In autumn, the stirrings of the channel rivers resemble something floating. Fu, why is this? And Chibo says, in autumn, the flow of the channel rivers is influenced by the lung organs, the western direction, and the descending pattern of molten metal. So when we talk about metal in the five element sense, they're not talking about the solid form of metal. They're talking about what happens when you heat up earth, for example. How do you separate earth from metal? You heat it, and what melts is metal, um, and what bakes is earth. Uh, when metal starts to flow, it acts like water and has that descending aspect that we associate with the metal direction motion. During this time, the 10,000 things begin to gather and complete their outer appearance. Thus, when the stirring of the chi arrives, it's li, it is light and vacuous, and in this way has a floating quality. Because it arrives with slight tension, but departs in a dispersing manner, it is also called floating. Patterns that move against this create illness. So it's like something floating, just in the same way that you would see the energy in the leaf but the, the energy that's supporting it drops away. All right, and our last one for the winter time, it's called shi, or the stone or the rock or tide quality. We wanna see some moderating center direction energy in the pulse, but now a sinking and a condensing energy in the pulse. In winter time, when the rivers of the body have stomach chi and there's a slight stone-like, a shi quality, the condition is called balanced, ping. In wintertime, the stirrings of the channel rivers resemble something stored away within the encampment of the body. Why is this? Chibo says, in wintertime, the pattern of the channel rivers is influenced by the kidney organs, the northern direction, and the descending pattern of water. Things are returning to their root, their private storage place to be regenerated, so a new breath can form in springtime. During this time, the 10,000 things converge and store their energy deep within the earth. Thus, when the stirring of the chi arrives, it's lie, it is sunken and closely bound. It is called encamped, or putting everything away in the camp. Patterns that move contrary to this mean illness patterns. So if it's wintertime and things are not stored deeply within, but floating way up on the waves, that's an illness pattern. And it, you can imagine it as the energy condenses something like a stone in a river forming deep and down and at the base. Okay, that's what I wanted to talk to you today about, and I hope that was interesting. I love this aspect of pulse diagnosis because it ties me to nature 
And I love to take my walks at lunchtime and observe what's happening in the plants and then go back to my work in the afternoon and feel it in my patients and make changes in their body to try and sync them up with that pattern of nature's breath. I wish you all a great day and I hope to see you in the future sometime in our trainings or community. Russ Rosen, welcome back to Geological. Ah, thank you so much for having me again. Yeah, you're a sucker for punishment, aren't you? <laughs> it's so much fun to talk about medicine. You know, it, it's just, it's like geeky as hell. Well, it's what we do all day and we don't often have an opportunity to like sit with colleagues and, and, and hash it out. So it's wonderful. It, you know, it is. And at the same time, and I'm being a little facetious here, but in some ways, maybe not. Like we do it all day long. Why would we want to take our valuable time outside a clinic and, and keep at it? Aren't there like things to do like garden, hang out with your family, go for bicycle rides and things like that? But no, we're, we're here hashing it out. It, it's all about balance. It, yeah, it's all about balance and, and like not having it sometimes. Yeah. But you know, it, it, it is interesting that this kind of work, and I suspect there's plenty of other kinds of work as well. For every hour that we put into it in the clinic, there's another piece where you, you think about it, you wonder about it, and it brings things up. And, and having a chance to chew the fat, especially with another colleague, it gives us a very unique opportunity to make sense of our day-to-day -day life that otherwise would just pass us by. I think that's true. And I think, you know, in reality, it's so much of that time outside of clinic that sort of solidifies the way we practice because we have to go through the process, the mental process of, and the theory and approaching our clinic the way that is true to our own beliefs, true to our own style. And of course, also consistent with Chinese medicine, but we have to, like any art form, which I do think Chinese medicine is, we have to we have to make it our own. We have to put our spirit into that practice. And so how can we do that if we're not spending time in contemplative practices and really um, thinking about this stuff all the time? They don't tell you that at the beginning of this journey, do they? They don't say, yeah, you're going to work in clinic for seven or eight hours and then you're going to be thinking about it most of your waking life. <laughs> exactly. You know, and I'm lucky too, so I have, my wife is also a practitioner and so we get to like talk about this all the time. <laughs> is, is that a, does that go in the plus column or the minus column? <laughs> no, it's definitely in the plus. It's definitely in the plus. Yeah. It's in the plus. All right. Great. Especially because she's listening. So I have to say that. Well, she will listen. As we speak or to the podcast? Well, no, no, no. She'll, she'll be following along in, in the final product. <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. She's a geological listener. Great. Well, I wanted to talk with you today, at least kick this thing off, see where it goes. We were talking a little while back about some other things, and and you came up with this really interesting phrase that caught my attention. You were talking about negotiating the diagnosis with our patients. And, and I thought, wow, what the hell is he talking about? And at the same time, there's this sense of, that's right. I'm not sure how it's right, but it's, you know, sometimes you hear something and you go, oh, that's right. I'm not sure what it means, but that sounds right. Yeah. Well, I think for what we do, 
the, the patient practitioner relationship is really the core of our practice, right? I mean, I, my, m a lot of my studies um, early on were, were at, with my mentor, Dr. Leon Hammer, right? He was a psychotherapist, psychiatrist. He, he, he's written a book on the patient practitioner relationship. There's a lot of you know, amazing gems in there about how to relate to our patients. And then, of course, I have my Taoist practice. And so when we think about how to negotiate a lived experience, right, with ourselves and our patients, we, 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 we do it with ourselves too, right? We have our internal narrative that is always running in the background. And how do we, how do we live in accord with that? How do we change that if we want to? How do we recognize when that internal narrative is problematic? How do we start to deconstruct some of these concepts that we sort of abide by in our daily lives. And so that's a, a big part of the, of the Taoist practice. But when you bring that over into the clinic and you have a patient in front of you and they're giving you their story, we have to honor their story, right, in some way. We can't just ignore their story and come from this like hierarchical, I'm the doctor, you're the patient, this is what I'm finding and this is what it means. And if it doesn't resonate with the patient in some way, you've lost them, right? I mean, I, I learned that early on in, in my practice, you know, when, especially the pulse diagnosis that we use in the Shen Hammer lineage is, is quite complex. It, there's a lot of subtleties. It's very easy to feel someone's pulse and say, this is it, this is what's going on, or these things are the things that are going on. But if they don't make sense to the patient, or if you don't have a way of translating it to the patient to bring them into the process, what happens is you lose them, number one, or it can be really too scary sometimes if it's not explained properly, and then they, they don't come back. You know, you don't help anyone if they don't come back into the practice, right? And so I started to just formulate a way of bringing this information in a way that honors the patient, in a way that brings them into the process in some way, right? So I always want to hear their story and understand what they think, but we always need to sort of guide that process in a particular way so that they follow us along the trajectory, right? Of, and that's, that this trajectory is really tracing a, a backwards trajectory from where they are now to where this process sort of began in a way that makes sense to them, right? So I know even in like, um, even in Sa'am, right? You have, you, you try to identify the trigger, right, oftentimes, right, the, the main catalyzing event, right, this is really important. Oftentimes, there's more than one triggering event for patients. So oftentimes, you know, with a, especially with something like trauma and heart shock, there's often a layered expression of, of these imbalances that we need to deal with. And each one sort of laminates on top of the other one and creates uh, a more solidified problem for patients. And so we have to deconstruct that all of the time and explain the sequela of that triggering event or events and how that brings patients on this trajectory towards imbalance and then eventually, potentially, disease process. And so if they're not sort of following us on this trajectory, then you don't create the resonance, that ganying that is so important for this process to take place. And, and my belief is that when, if it's done well, that interaction creates the lock that opens, uh, creates the key that opens the lock of the door into the allowance of the healing mechanisms to start to initiate. Does that make sense? I, I love you talking, I, the word laminated really struck me. 
like laminated, compressed, all stuck together. That's, it's like, how do you untie that? How do you pull that apart? Because you've got several things, but they're kind of one thing. You've got you to have that somehow soften, become unsolidified so that you can open it up and, and then you can get access to it. And yeah, I'm with you. Everyone's got a story about why they think they've got a problem or why they think they don't have a problem, right? There could just be an empty space where there's a big story, but people can't get to it. Or there's a big story and people's lives orbit around it. There's that. What you said about communicating with the patient in a way that makes sense to them, that for me, I think is so key and so critical. And the reason that I say that is because I've got years of experience trying to teach a little Chinese medicine 101 or I've got an idea about how something might be helpful and I'm trying to explain it to the patient. None of that ever was helpful. The challenge that I find is can I take everything that I know about Chinese medicine and anything else that I might have run into in life that might be useful and communicate it to the patient again their words, their story, their way of seeing the world. Can I find a way to get into that world in a way where they go, that's right, you get it. That's when I think that laminated material starts to soften. Yeah, agreed. I think, I think that's the key. And uh, what for my process with patients is, is the entryway into that discussion is the pulse. You know, so because the pulse is very, uh, it, it's very sophisticated in that it allows for you to understand energetic dynamics, psychological dynamics, uh, emotions. You can tell when a patient's depressed or anxious. You can tell when a patient is resigned and sort of given up. You can tell so much from what's happening, whether a patient is suppressing particular angry feelings or tender feelings, right? And so when you do this and you say, well, your pulse is telling me A, B, and C, and this is how it relates to the story you just told me, this is the why and the how, then it, it, it not only gives a diagnosis to a patient, it gives affirmation to a patient of their living experience. They, they understand that you see them, you understand them, and you get how they've been living. Then it allows them to trust you to take this journey with them, to sort of move them in a different trajectory, to get away from that particular line of thinking or narrative or whatever it is, or, or diagnosis that, and we, and we have metrics for this. You know, when I, when I take someone's pulse, I do it on a big, uh, there's a whole pulse record that we fill out and I show them the pulse record and I actually will flip the page over for certain qualities and I will draw and map it out and explain to them, here's what the normal pulse looks like and feels like. This is what yours feels like and looks like. This is what it means. This is how it relates to why you're feeling what you're feeling. And this is what caused it in the first place. And so we can sort of play this, this game of narrating their experience and showing it to them right on paper. You know, and, and one of the things that I that I try and explain is too, and, and to Chinese medicine practitioners when I when I teach this is that you know, and, and this I try and bring this back into some of uh, the the Taoist practice. So you know, one of the things that I do 
is I create talismans for patients with Taoist medicine, right? This is something that we do in, in, in our Parting Clouds Taoist community. And a talisman is basically a, essentially a written document that is technically really only half of a document. When I'm writing a talisman, the idea is that that talisman needs to be identical to that which is mirrored in the celestial bureaucracy. That authenticates it. Well, so as a, as a Taoist priest, we're communicating with the celestials, right? The, the deities, particular generals and deities that govern particular talismans and, and, and functions for uh, the actions of what these talismans command them to do. And so number one, you have to be authenticated to do that practice. So meaning you have to be ordained as a Taoist priest, but also your document that you're writing which is calligraphic in style, symbols, and all these different uh, a celestial sort of vocabulary or language, if you will, that has to be mirrored to say, yes, that's exactly the talisman that I have, and I know what that talisman means. And then there's particular incantations, right, that go along with that to actually uh, take that key and stick it in the lock and make the talisman now work and command the deities via the, ta- via the, the incantatory process. And then either it's worn or burned and the ashes can be consumed in water or herbs or wine or whatever, whatever it is. There's many different processes. And then the generals or the deities have to perform that particular, they are like commanded to perform the particular action that the talisman requires. And that could be a whole number of different types of healing uh, impacts and it could be exorcistic in nature. It can be removing turbidity, whatever it is. It is a little Harry Potter-ish, that's why. Yeah, but so this is the process that I explain to patients and to practitioners is that when you're taking someone's pulse and you're writing now and filling in this big document of the pulse record, what you are really doing is filling out a talisman. And that talisman, this one is not mirrored in the celestial bureaucracy. It's mirrored from the patient's energetic, physiological, and psychological response that I'm feeling directly under my fingertips on the radial artery. When I report that and narrate that back to the patient, the resonance and the ganying that is now established serves as the incantatory process. Okay, so hang on a second. Let me make sure I'm following this. I'm going to try to put it in my language, make sure I'm getting it. You do the pulse, you've got everything else that you're doing with the patient. You're speaking their story back to them through your sensing, through your hearing. You're you're singing back the story of who they are to themselves and checking to see, does that land for them, right? Is that ganging is or that resonance? Because you could speak a story back to them and they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Absolutely. In in which case, oh, okay, let's, let's take another shot at this. There's something about, I'm going to say it this way, singing their song back to them that sets something in motion. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. That is now the healing trigger that mimics or unlocks the trigger that happened that initiated the illness. All right. And so we bring them along on this process, explaining in detail or as much detail as we can in a way that is understandable, that ties back in the elements of their story, right? And their symptoms and the other signs that are happening and then creates this sort of like 
we will maybe call it a ritual sort of space, right? That now allows for the possibilities of healing to emerge, right? Because to allow for change, you have to sort of disentangle the particular narrative or the process that they've been dealing with, right? You have to go back to, you know, in Taoism, we would say you go back to the state of emptiness, back to, back to the void, which allows for all possibilities to emerge. And so if you don't bring someone back to that place, then it makes it very difficult to initiate a healing response. But it's very simple if you bring them back to an understanding back to the beginning, Right? So it, it's like this reversionary process. This is the process that, process that we engage in as, as Taoists. We, it, it's, it's not about going with the flow, right? It's about actually reverting, reverting back to a state of emptiness so that things be, then become into a state of you know, the wu wei or the, or the spontaneity, right? You can't do that if someone is moving in a direction based off of a faulty narrative, based off of perceptions from suffering. Yeah. So my friends that do cranial work, they talk about a state of neutral. And, and as I listen to how you describe this, there's some ganging going on here, right? I, I think about them talking about that state of neutral. They're, they could shift this way. They could shift that way. They're unencumbered from what usually encumbers them. Things can be shifted in that moment. But you can't shift them in another moment because you'll get you'll get pushback. Right. Right? You got to you got to like put the clutch in before you go to shift the gears. Absolutely. Yeah, bringing them back to that neutral space and that's, you know, trying to find a place where homeostasis can reinitiate and reemerge. Yes, because homeostasis, this is something when I first started studying medicine, started learning about the idea of homeostasis, like, oh, it keeps things in balance. Well, it can keep homeostasis is a powerful force. It will keep things not necessarily in balance, but it will keep things in whatever regulation they're in. So if you're dysregulated, homeostasis is going to keep you dysregulated. Right. So so this becomes the issue. What entrains what? Right. So, and, and again, yeah. And, and so we have this idea and this concept that we talk about all the time in Chinese medicine, and it's sort of the same in Taoism. We, we call it, you know, the jung, right? The upright, the correct, and the xie, right? The xie qi or the jung qi. And so xie qi can be lots of things. It can be any outside stressor. It could be wind, cold, damp, heat, whatever it can be. It can be a trauma. It can be something that comes into the system that starts to create turbulence in the normal waveform, the normal free-flowing liver qi of our lives. And that's different and unique for everyone. The question is, is that strong enough? Is it upright enough to entrain back into that normal state and take whatever comes into the system and convert it back into that normal waveform? Or does the turbulence become the new norm? And in fact, when we're talking, you know, the topic of the book, my book, Heart Shock, what we find very specifically is that on the top of the waveform, we find a rough vibration. And that's like the pathognomonic finding of heart shock. And it comes along with lots of other things. But when you find a, a rough vibration on the pulse, that's a sign that someone has really been shaken to their core. It's impacted that jung, right? It's now no longer able to smoothly flow through life, that free-flowing, smooth flow of liberty. Now it's rough, it's turbulent, 
right? The waves are, are just you know, inconsistent. There's changing amplitudes and intensities. Uh, we're on the roller coaster of life where emotions are changing right after each other. There's no consistency. There's no stability. And so we have to find out how, to we, how, how do we revert that back to a normal movement. This is really interesting. There, I've not studied Shenhammer. I mean, I've heard you guys talk about it a bit. and I, you know, I've played around with how I describe the pulse to myself. And there's a pulse that I feel sometimes. I, I've, I've given it a name. It's called a ringing pulse. Usually felt on the right much more than the left. And it's ringing. It's like, it's like you put your finger on a bell. It's got this ringing sensation to it. And uh, I feel it every now and then. I've been working out for myself. What does that actually mean? I've been feeling it for years. I'm still working it out. It's one of those things where it's like it shows up. I go, oh, yeah, there it is again. I try to look at the patient, what they're coming in with, what they're presenting with, what the issues are. Still working on it. But listening to you today, I'm thinking, oh, maybe... Maybe there's something about a, a trauma that's stuck that is continuing to reverberate and ring through the system. I don't know if this is true, but I'll, I'll certainly take a look next time I get into clinic. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, in, in Shen Hammer, we, we delineate lots of different types of these rough and vibrating. So we have the rough quality, a choppy quality. We have rough vibration. We have smooth vibration. And there's like hybrids. You know, it gets, it gets complicated to sort of suss out sometimes, especially because no quality exists in isolation. So when you're feeling a, a rough quality, you're also feeling probably six or seven other qualities at the same time in that same space. So you have to sort of be able to understand the qualities enough to understand what it, what's happening. Because it's laminated. Exactly. We are complex. But the good thing is that as complex as we are, there are a finite number of ways that the body can sort of express some of these things. And, and you know, I, I think of them sort of as signatures. You know, they have the nature of a signature, like, a, like you know, a choppy pulse is sort of rough in a way, but different than a rough vibration, but it's sort of just serrated. It's more sharp, like a, like a serrated knife. And so you think about what a serrated knife would do to the, the tissues, right? It creates irritation, it creates blood stasis, and sometimes even some micro bleeding in the tissues. And then you think about, well, gee, what are things that treat blood stasis oftentimes in nature? And they often are serrated. Right, like the, the leaves are serrated, or like you know, like you see, uh, like you know, the, the itchy balls all over the ground in the springtime, right? In the fall, like those those lulupong, right? That it treats blood stasis. Like you see these dynamics, we we can pinpoint by looking and understanding these signatures of what the plant is going to do internally. But we can see that also on the pulse when we feel particular things. What is that going to mean when you feel a pulse that feels waterlogged? You know, it's a damp problem, right? Right, for sure. Yeah, that one's easy. It's like, you know, I find it interesting. There's certain pulses I feel, it's like, oh yeah, that's that. You know, and then there's others where it's like, what is that? Yes, yeah. It can, there's not, uh, it's not always a, and it's not always a one-to-one -one correlation, right? Because there, there are processes that are taking place. I want to come back to narrative and changing narrative. Narrative is such a curious thing, right? The stories that we have. And... Changing that, I think, is 
quite essential in many cases. Also difficult, we get very married and very clingy to our stories. They're very important to us. You know, people will fight to the death for their story. Unwinding that, or maybe just creating a little crevice, a little room for another another perspective, that, to me, is some not easy work. It's not easy, for sure. And I think, but one of the things that we can, I think, say confidently is that if you do have such a strong belief in the way things have to be, then perhaps we can consider the fact that maybe we need to think about that narrative in a little more detail. You know, I, it's funny. So the other day I was listening to um, one of my old recordings that I have of uh, a class that, that Jeffrey Yuen was, was uh, teaching. And he actually said something that I thought was completely in line with what we're talking about right now, which is that, and he was talking about, um, you know, prayers, right? Making your daily prayers and daily invocations and so forth. And he was, he was encouraging people to really consider the internal narrative that is really on a loop all the time for most of us. And especially if we're ill, we have a, a narrative about what that loop means, about what the illness is and what it's going to be in the future and all of these things. But if what he did was he said, think of that like a prayer, right? So what if you were going to pray for something to happen into the future, what do you want that prayer to be? If your narrative is such of doom and gloom, that's the prayer that you're living and putting out into the world. And so, yeah, it's not easy. I mean, it, it takes time, and it, but it's like any, any muscle that you want to build. At first, the muscle is weak and atrophied, and you got to just start using it. And eventually, the muscle gets more toned and stronger and stronger and stronger. So it's the same thing with the way our stories sort of go on loops. Every time we catch ourselves thinking or saying something rooted in a narrative that is not um, consistent with our well-being, we have to be like a wrathful deity with that sword and just sort of slash it down <laughs> and replace it. A wrathful deity. Right? I mean... Yeah, you need that sometimes, right? Bring the dragon fire in here. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we need to just reconsider. And it doesn't mean it's going to, you know, keep... You do it once and you're done. There's no one and done in this. This is a consistent, repetitive, ongoing process that takes practice and retraining. The entrainment that we talked about earlier. You have to keep doing that. Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do Channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. 
It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. I think this is one of the reasons why acupuncture has such a profound effect on so many people. Not necessarily with every treatment, but by and large, within the first couple treatments, I have found with many, many people, there will be that treatment. I think we all know what we're talking about with that treatment because it's the one where patients come back and they're different. They're fundamentally different in some way. And they go, whatever you did last time, do that again, right? Which is hilarious because, well, you know, I wish I could, but you're not the same which is an astonishing thought for many people. What do you mean I'm not the same? Well, you didn't have PMS last period, did you? It's like, nope. When did that happen last? Uh, maybe I am different. It's, it, it's very, I think it's challenging for patients, and I'm going to say for all of us, to realize that we might be living in a different world. Acupuncture seems to help us untangle some of this stuff. And I would like to turn this conversation for the moment into how we can use our acupuncture. Maybe I'm going to use your words here. I don't know if this fits or not as a talisman to use our acupuncture to bring that stillness, to use our acupuncture to create a space in stillness in the narrative. So maybe something else from the Jung Chi can slip itself in. Right. You know, one of the big things that Dr. Hammer always lectured on was that what acupuncture is really doing, well, not the only thing it's doing, but one of the main things it's doing is providing awareness, right? So it provides awareness into the system that allows people to contemplate particular things, to feel particular things, that may be completely foreign to them. Like I know, and I'm sure you've had, and I'm sure everyone listening to this has had the experience of treating a patient and you come back in the room and they say, I have never been this relaxed. I don't think my body has ever experienced a state of complete rest and relaxation before, or my mind completely shut down for the first time and I wasn't just worried and thinking and anxious all the time. You know, these are powerful. To touch, to touch that space, even just for a minute, becomes a new ground of awareness for people and a new goal with which to sort of aspire to in their daily lives. And then the question is, well, how do I do it? And then we have to understand and tie in everyone's, you know, the, people's lifestyles and have awareness of like, how much caffeine are you drinking? Then how do you wake up and eat on the go? And what, what's your home life like? And, you know, all of these things that touch to the idea of, well, how do I handle stress? How do I perceive that stress? What do I do when I feel that stressed? Right? What are my adaptive responses to that stress and my lifestyle choices that I make that maybe aren't the best choices when I feel that stress? And so it starts to kind of create this downward momentum of all the things to now start to consider about one's life just from that one moment, just from that one experience of feeling calm and relaxed to now investigate 
one's entire life and being. That's pretty cool. Well, you mentioned it earlier, the Zheng Qi. That, I remember getting that concept early in my, well, I didn't get the concept. I was exposed to the concept. It's taken many years to recognize that the Zheng is extremely patient. It'll kind of wait around. And it can accommodate a lot, right? So it accommodates things in, in interesting ways because how do you accommodate pathology for so long? That's a great question. How do you? Well, I think it depends on resources and the resources that we bring to bear to the kinds of um, stresses and illnesses that we manage all the time. And I think there's a number of different systems that do that. Clearly, you know, the, the digestive organs from a five element perspective are involved in, in that. Um, but different channel systems, you know, all, especially the channel systems that can bring things into a state of latency, right? Like the low vessels or the divergent channels or the eight extraordinary vessels, they bring their resources to bear to either suppress or repress particular types of pathological um, responses or, or factors, whether that be emotional stresses and things that we don't want to deal with, or it's things like, you know, bugs and pathogens and radiation and how, we, how that impacts us. How do we bring our resources to bear to keep things in a state of quietude so that we can go on living our lives, you know? So these are different for everyone based on constitution and based on the, the resources that we, ha we have to, to, to bear and also the lifestyles that we live. Mm -hmm. Could you go a little into the difference between suppression and repression? Sure. So imagine you have, you're working, you have a boss who's really mean to you, right? You go into work and, you know, he gives you the business all the time, criticizing, you know, yelling, whatever it is, losing control. And you have to sort of take that. You, you are aware of the insult and the onslaught of that energy against you, you can't just speak up and yell back at him because you'll lose your job and you need that job because you got a family to feed and put food on the table and all these things. So you sort of swallow that down and you hold it, right? And so you go to work in the morning and you know it's coming, but you still go to work and you're aware of it, but you temper it, right? You temper it, you use your resources, you use your liver, right, to contain and hold it, and you create liver cheese stagnation, you create stagnation all around your diaphragm, right? We feel this on the pulse with inflated diaphragm pulses and, and different types of liver engorgement pulses. And so you hold that anger, you hold that frustration, you hold that irritability, and you kind of suck it up and you go. But on the other side, you may have things that are coming into your life from very early on, different types of traumas that maybe you've experienced that you've um, dissociated from that you don't really have in your direct awareness that have sort of embedded themselves deep down into the the fibers of your being into that UN level that you don't think about on a day-to-day -day basis, but they still require uh, a certain amount of resource to keep them quiet, right? And so the other day, you know, I have a patient that I'm working with um, who had some sexual trauma when she was very young and She's been having certain like t muscle and neck tensions that have come out of nowhere and she thinks that it must be related somehow to some experience that she can't recall, 
you know? And so we were doing different types of deep treatments and in the treatment, she, the memory, you know, just kind of flourished back out. So that was something that came from a repressed place that emerged into a state of more of a suppressed place because it came up into an awareness that there's something sort of there. So it's sort of in between those states and then it sort of flourished out into the way level into, into her mind, you know, and was released. So repression we're not aware of, suppression we're doing consciously. And we have to, the cool thing about that too is when things are in the repressed level, they're in, a, they're in the UN level. So they're not necessarily within our control until they, become, they come into our awareness. Once it's in our awareness, right now it's the yin level, right? The blood level. The cool thing is that we have the ability to actually change it because we can start to think different. Because we have shen in the blood. Right, we can think about it. And this goes back to the, to the narrative component that we were talking about earlier. So now we can start working with narrative, right? And really start to change our perceptions. And back to the acupuncture that you were asking before, is then you go to the portals. How do you clear the portals? How do you open the portals in some way? So to allow, so you have, you know, you have your, your Jing well points, you have your points all, all along the sensory orifices, you have the window of the sky points, you have points that get rid of phlegm, you have, you know, there's lots, of, the whole transformative process of, of that, so you can start to see things a little more clearly. So those are the layers that you may want to start working with and unpeeling so that we can sort of remove the obfuscations and to see things for what they were, because there is no such thing as this is what happened. Everything is a subjective reality imposed upon our consciousness based on the clarity of our portals and, and all of those things. So the more we work with it, the closer we can get to perceiving it in a different way. And even if it's just a choice, that can be powerful. We can just choose to see something differently. And if we choose a, a, a way of seeing it differently that is more in alignment with regaining health and wellness, confidence, whatever it is, that becomes powerful. Choice, having choice, exercising choice, exercising agency, I think is tremendously powerful. It can be deeply healing, transformatively so. It takes strength to do so, though, right? So, so from this perspective, choice would be um, a function of, to some degree, the gallbladder, right? Making those decisions, decision-making, right? And then we can figure out where to go from there. But if you think about one of the most diseased organs of our current time, right? We think about the gallbladder. Look at, look at how many gallbladder resections have we? People getting their gallbladders taken out all the time. They're constantly being burdened. And even the idea of, well, you don't need a gallbladder. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's a little disempowering. Sure is. It sure is, because if we don't, because especially because those decisions, they're not just like spur the moment decisions that the gallbladder is making. The gallbladder makes decisions, ideally, based off of an innate knowing of what is right for us, right? It's the mediator, right? The wood is mediating the vertical access of fire and water, that heart-kidney communication. So the gallbladder, if you don't know yourself, if you haven't spent time cultivating or, or time for introspection, how can that gallbladder even know how to make proper decisions? If you don't even know what you want, what you need, 
or what's going on in your life if there's no clarity, right? And so the gallbladder tries and tries and tries to create that, um, but it, it just gets overburdened more and more as time goes by. It's not easy to make decisions. I think it's not easy to make decisions because then we have to stand up for our decisions. We might take some heat for it. There could be a lot of pushback. It takes courage. There's our gallbladder again. It takes courage to make decisions, being able to draw those boundaries and, and not just draw the boundaries, but stand up for it. Right. Taking responsibility. Yes. And, and in some ways, I mean, I've always been one of these uh, kind of characters. Uh, antisocial is not the right word, but, uh, you know, more like, well, the world's like this. Let me describe the world to you. The world's like this, and this is how you're supposed to believe. And there's always been this part of me that's like, yeah, how do you know that? According to who? Right. Because you can buy beliefs off the shelf and just live that life. That'll do one thing to your gallbladder, I suspect. Or you could decide, how do I make the choices and decisions in my life? Am I in touch with that own, my own sovereign fire? Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, so from, again, back to, to, to the Taoist perspective, right? That's what's associated to the gallbladder is thunder, right? And the element of thunder. And so thunder is a lot of the energetics that we use in the creation of talismans in my lineage. It's actually a thunder medicine. We use and we, uh, we ask and command the thunder deities to intervene on different things. But like so many things... Do you want people to buckle up before you do that? Do you, are you like, put on your crash helmet and buckle up? Because Depends. I mean, it depends what you're doing, you know. Here comes the thunder... Yeah, I mean, it, it can be quite strong. And, and, and I think my patients who have experienced that will, they unanimous, unanimously agree that healing intervention far supersedes anything else that I do in the clinic. And so, but the issue with thunder is that, so thunder can be two-sided, right? Thunder can be destructive, right? So you get, you get hit by thunder in a way where it's meant to be destructive force. Like, well, think of a trauma. A trauma can be completely destructive to you, right? So when you think about hexagram 51 from the I Ching, the thunder hexagram, right? The other side of thunder is what they talk about in, in the hexagram is, so you get, you get struck by this, people shake and shiver, and then they whoop it up with laughter. So the other side of thunder, and this is what, this is like the whole theme of my book, is that this particular intervening event is something that should be utilized as part of the evolutionary process for healing. So just like someone who's overcoming a trauma, you don't go back to the pre-trauma state that you were in. Ideally, you grow through that trauma, right? And you become a more evolved, a more aware, right? a more resilient self. And that's the idea, right? And so, but you need a gallbladder. Or you need some integrity of your gallbladder. Whether your gallbladder is removed or not, there's still pieces of like the, the channel system still there, right? But so, so did you say that the opposite of the thunder is laughter? No, no, no. It's not the opposite of the thunder. Um, I'm saying that moving th in in the in that hexagram. You said you said you said the other side of thunder. What, what's the other side of thunder? One side of the thunder is the destructive side. The other side of thunder is the healing side. We use, see, in, I use the thunder medicine as part of a healing response. It's to, it comes in there and crashes as a, as a blast of yang 
to disperse turbidity, to allow for clarity, confidence, strength, yang. Yeah. And so that helps that evolutionary process move. Yeah, it'll wake you up or it'll scare the hell out of you. Exactly. Yeah. But the waking up of the consciousness is the critical piece. That's, and that's one of the main strategies that I delineate in the heart shock text. Because you can't, it's one thing to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to undo blood stasis, right? Which technically maybe you can't even really do unless you're providing awareness because the Shen resides in the blood. So if you're moving blood that has been stagnated and that blood has been stagnated for a particular reason because I don't want to remember my trauma, it's too painful. So part of the strategies of heart shock is to provide that comfort, right? We nourish yin, we give resources, like, like, a, like a mother's embrace to calm someone down. We relax the nervous system. We reintegrate and strengthen the kidneys, right? You've got to shut down the adrenals a little bit to, so they're not hyperactive all the time with adrenaline rushing everywhere. And we have to open the portals, provide awareness to see things from different perspectives. So if you move too much blood without some attention to the awareness that it could bring, could that cause problems? You can get resistance. You get a lot of resistance and pain, sure. You get, you, people can, can resist that dynamic. So if you're going to move the blood, you've got to give it some direction and, and place to move to. It's like if a system's under pressure and you want it to depressurize, you need a pressure relief valve somewhere. Absolutely, and that's the Jing Well points, right? And so one of the things that happens is, you know, so if you have long-term, especially, blood stasis, what that also means is you have toxicity, because all the waste products that have been stagnant in the blood that should have been moved out through the system don't get moved out. And so now they can, they're congesting everything. So you need to have the integrity to move out those waste products while you're invigorating the blood as well. Otherwise, people can become very symptomatic. Uh-huh. So Ching Well points, I often think about bleeding those. Yes, you can bleed them. Bleed them, you can, you know, warming needle or just, you know, needling them sort of like horizontally directing outwards. Mm-hmm. We do that whenever we're doing sinew treatments or we're doing diversion treatments where we're looking to um, remove latency, right? So if you want to assert latency, you don't use the Jing Well points. You just build resources and try and quiet things down and create a state of quietude and quiescence for the problem until they're strong enough and have the resources to pull things out. But when you're ready to pull things out and clear, if you bring something out and open Pandora's box mm. and you don't give an outlet for that, all you're doing is bringing out into the system all the things that someone couldn't deal with in the first place. That can be very destabilizing. Oh my God, you know what? I am suddenly thinking of that fantastic book that we read as kids, Cat in the Hat. Remember thing one and thing two? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, of course. They're going to wreak havoc. <laughs> is, it, is it like that? It's like, oh, we bring in the cat in the hat and we, yeah, we create havoc. Thing one and thing two, they're all over the place. If someone is suppressing or repressing something, we don't just boom, take it out and say, all right, like, you, you know, I'm taking this out of latency and now you're going to deal with it. You, you, we, have to un, we have to explain the process, right? I mean, someone is suffering because they couldn't deal with something. So we don't just say, okay, here it is. Look at it, you know, hold their head and make sure they stare at it because it's, it, it's too painful. So you have to provide. So you have to sort of provide mechanisms and strategies and, and sometimes that takes time. <laughs> 
Sometimes you bring things into a state of quiet. You don't want to look at it. Okay, let's quiet things down. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five-element and six-chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Yeah, quiet it down. So this, I've had conversations with other people around the divergent channels which I don't really understand, so I want to get into this a bit, but I've, I've heard this idea that the divergences, they can store things, maybe even for an entire lifetime. And that's fine because they're kind of built for that. They can do it. It's like long-term storage. It's like the U-store place or whatever. If you have the resources. If you have the resources. Hey, I, let's get another U-store place. You know, I got, the re- I got the money so I can put the shit in there. Absolutely. So there's that. And, and there's a place for that. Sometimes you want to quiet things down and you bring resources for that. I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking out loud here, but sometimes people are ready for something transformative. Like, you know what? I'm going to clean this stuff out. We're going to clean out the basement. This, it sounds like is when you need to bring the resources so that they can handle all of that. Well, right. So they need the resources both ways, right? So to keep, think of it this way. So if you have, Say you have a pathogen that's coming into the system and it's going, it, it's it's too strong for the sinew channels. They, they can't even address it. And so it's going in, it's trying going into the primary channels, it's going in towards the organs. So the body has enough wisdom and enough resources not to push it out of the body, but enough to sort of encapsulate it with some yin resource and then divert it to a storage place. Usually that's in the bony cavities and the joints and like the hips and the knees and shoulders and so forth. Sometimes the sinus, sometimes the teeth, Right? These are where people oftentimes store uh, latency. And you sort of blanket that with resources. And so imagine now you're, you're the general and you're sending a certain amount of troops, your Zheng Qi troops to the area, Wei Qi in particular, and now you need to sort of contain something. If you have enough Wei Qi and enough resources, you'll keep containing that ad infinitum indefinitely. But like all wars, there's casualties. And eventually you're going to start losing resources. And because Wei Qi and the energy to hold this and the, and the pathogen itself, anything that goes internal turns to heat, you start to get inflammatory. So you got to bring the Jing, quiet it down. When the Jing starts to wear out, you got to bring the blood to convert to, to more Jing. When that blood starts to wear out, you got to bring the thin fluids and the thick fluids, all these things. You got to keep diverting resources. The question is, do you have enough resources to keep bringing over there to contain these pathogens? 
while still maintaining healthy, normal functioning? And eventually, will those resources get consumed? And then now this inflammatory process starts to work its way back. And it's, it does this generally into the bowels first, right? So inflammatory bowel problems, sinusitis, rhinitis, you know, tooth infection, all these, this is where it starts to come first, right? The autoimmune diseases, the cancers then, they start to become inflammatory and they start to become metastatic because there's no containment anymore. So it can be contained for a period of time as long as you've got resources and let's just say guards to keep it, keep it locked down. But at a certain point, if you, lo- if you don't have those resources, uh, thing one and thing two, who have been pent up for 30 years now, they've gotten to be even more troublesome, and now they're, they're coming out and wrecking vengeance. And not only that, they're starting to have children, <laughs> and they're multiplying. Because we're not just dealing with one pathogen from one time in our life, and kind of, we're, we're bombarded with pathogens. And they're crazy, and we made them crazy. With the isolation. And we made them crazy. And so, and when we have the resources to say, okay, now I've quieted down and now I really, I don't want to keep consuming my resources. I want to just get this stuff out. So we need to make sure that we have the fluids to bring it out because anything that discharges from the system, it's going to come sweat, it's going to come mucus, it's going to come saliva, it's going to come, you know, vomit, diarrhea, whatever. We got to get something out some way. We need to make sure that also the lungs can diffuse and expel things out to the surface because the Weichi has to be able to say, oh, I'm going to push this now out of the system. So all of these things, you have to think about these things before you're saying, oh, I'm going to take something out and try and get rid of it. If the lungs can't diffuse and you're trying to pull a pathogen out, what you're just going to do is you're going to bring it out into the surface and it's going to get stuck and create more inflammatory response. Yes, it's going to live on this on, on the edges of town and keep uh, sniping. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so this is where like the tie-in would be really helpful. You were mentioning the lung. I'm thinking of the spleen and its capacity to create fluid and dampness, proper physiological fluid. Tie-in is very, very involved with that, and so we'd want to pay some attention to that as well. That's a major strategy. It's making sure you have, you know, spleen, stomach fluids, and that can ascend to the lung so that you can expel or push it down so it can go out through the bowel, depending on what the pathogen is. Is this, so I, I'm looking at this, I'm thinking of this as a model of, of you know, physiology and, and, and how life unfolds. This might be why as people age, there are certain morbidities that start to show up because there are things that have been put into storage and now as there's not as many resources, we see where the bodies are buried, so to speak. Absolutely. I mean, think about what are some of the most common signs of aging, things like osteopenia and osteoporosis, right? The bones now can no longer hold. The bones can't even maintain their own integrity, let alone keep something quiet there. Yeah, that's powerful. This is a really... I appreciate you going through this with me. Again, these divergent channels is something I've come at a couple of few times. I feel like on this run through, I'm beginning to get a sense of uh, of, of how that works and, and how it's connected with the rest of the system. Tell me a little bit more about helping to expel. 
you know, when it, let's say it's time to help expel some of this. Tell me, walk me through some of that. Well, so it depends on where you're expelling something from. So if it's if it's like a a low vessel pathology, of course, you're going to, you're going to bleed. You're going to do gua sha, things like that. Seven star needling, those kinds of things. Are there any particular points that you like to bleed besides the Jing well? Uh, well, I bleed the, the low points and any points along the low trajectory that might have sort of either be a point that is indicated for it or a point that is showing up with some type of spider veins or some some signs of you know purple or whatever stagnation that we want to look at there, you know. And then oftentimes too, depending on how long something has been maintained in latency, you may need to also do things like moxa and so forth because sometimes that latency actually moves. Like so, when a, a low vessel moves into a state of emptiness of the vessels, then that means that that blood stasis is now moving back into the primary channels. And so you may need to do, do more moxa and things like that to sort of bring things back to the low so that you can expel it and bleed it out. Because the low vessels don't treat anything. They just, they just hold. And the treatment is to bleed them. Okay. And so if you can contain that pathogen into the low vessel, then you've got direct access to expelling it from the body. Like round them up and take them out. Otherwise, you're looking at uh, the sinew channels at that point, and you would be looking at, um, depending on uh, where the particular pathogens are residing and which channels they're in and which, which, which muscle channels and so forth, um, sometimes they're, if it's been there for a long time, it tends to be in multiple channels you know, because they, the muscle channels are much broader and they overlap a lot more than the other channels do. So you may need to use the confluent points, you know, the, the crossing points of some of these channels, and then any places where, you know, the typical things where you would see usher points and areas that look like they're swollen or stagnant from touch, and then you would needle the Jingwell points of those associated channels or places where, so sometimes with the sinew channels, there's multiple sort of ways of looking at it, because you could have a problem on one channel. Say you have a, a frozen shoulder, right? And, and the pain is on large intestine 15. You don't just necessarily bleed or needle LI1 to remove that because then you have to do a, what's called a movement analysis and see which movements are eliciting the discomfort. So if it's a matter of extending the arm outward, that's a Taiyang problem. And so you would needle local points around LI15, but you would needle the Jingwell point of small intestine as a Taiyang channel because that's the nature of the pathogen. So you want to bring it out that way. And so if the problem was, well, I can extend out fine and reach, but when I bend my arm and then rotate it, I can't do that. I can't like go back and like a woman would say, I can't go and touch and unhook my bra, right? So that would be a Xiao Yin problem. It's the retraction and then, well, you would use um, heart potentially. No, no, I'm sorry. Xiao Yin, you'd go for the uh, heart channel. Right. So there's all these different sort of um, mechanisms for understanding where exactly to release the problem from. But of course, you could also, with sinew channels, you could also do you know, Gua Sha and, and bring in the blood to sort of help that process too. So there's, there's lots of, of ways of doing it. Cool. All right, man, there's plenty more to talk about, but we're, we're coming up to uh, the time where we need to land this thing. 
It was fun, though. It is fun. We may have to come back and do it again. You know, there's that. Hey, I'm doing something kind of new. I was listening to a podcast recently, Barry Weiss, actually. She had Rick Rubin on recently. You know who Rick Rubin is? I don't know him. Oh, man. Rick Rubin is this dude. Uh, he looks like an old hippie. And he is an incredible producer of all kinds of music, everything from like Neil Young to, the, to hip hop. He started his business as a college student in the dorm room at NYU. The dude is amazing. He's really interesting. Anyway, he was on Barry, Barry Weiss's show. And, and I'm like totally into Rick Rubin at the moment. The guy's like my new hero. At any rate, Barry Weiss does this uh, lightning round. So I'm going to do a, I'm going to try this out. I'm going to try it out on you. We're going to do a couple of very quick, like one-liners just to, uh, you know, it, it's like after, you know, a wine tasting, you want to, you know, refresh your mind for a moment. So you up for it? Sure. I don't know what kind of topics you're talking about on, you know. Simple questions, one-line answers. Here we go. What are you reading right now? What am I reading right now? I'm actually not. I'm reading just Taoist texts at this point and, and manuals. Would you rather travel to the past or to the future? Future. Future. Why? Well, I, I want to make sure that everything I'm doing is panning out the way I want it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I know what's in the past. <laughs> okay, cool. That's good. What is the best advice you have ever received? Oh, you know, I, I think the best advice is is living in the now, which is the converse, really, or the or the the option you didn't give me in the last question. And I think it's because I think it's the hardest. And I think it's it's something we try to do, and that's what that's what we do in meditation. And it's man, it's just so hard. And uh, but I see the value in it all the time. Cool. What's your favorite snack? Oh my gosh, you know, pretzels and French fries. <laughs> yeah, baby. <laughs> Try not to do them too much, but those are the favorites. There you go. Yeah, crunchy and salty and oily. Mm -mm 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 -mm. All right. Gallbladder for the, for the oil, right? <laughs> yes. Finish the sentence. Artificial intelligence is going to... Completely screw us. <laughs> and finally, the most heartfelt thing that you have learned from practicing medicine. Be fearless. I think, and we talked this from before, is, is just allow it. Allow it. I think this is the blockage for, for most people. Not allowing what is supposed to be, be. And you can only do that if you have the courage and to not be afraid. Ross Rosen, as ever, it's a delight to hang out with you. Oh, same here. Thanks so much. After having this conversation with Ross, I find myself looking at patients or problems in my life or the social issues of the day and asking myself, what is the heart of this matter? It's a helpful question and one I've discovered can be asked whenever I need to pause and consider, what is the heart of this matter? Like a child asking why, why, why? It's an inquiry that can help to distill out the essence of a complex problem. And what's more, perhaps lend some courage in moving toward finding a solution. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. 
It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm -hmm.